Okay, so Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for, their fa- for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word now and as we uh, just dive into this passage, uh, would you give us understanding by your spirit? Uh, we are so thankful that, uh, that Jesus teaches us how to pray. And so we, we pray for teachable hearts um, that we uh, would hear from him and that what we hear would, um, would transform us, that it would lead us uh, to a deeper prayer life, uh, to a deeper relationship with you. So we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> how did you learn how to pray? How did you learn how to pray? Maybe you've never uh, thought about that question before. And I'm guessing that probably many of you learned how to pray by just hearing someone else pray. Right? Maybe it was your pastor or friends or other Christians at church. And just hearing them pray, you kind of picked up on certain things. You're like, okay, this is kind of like the general sequence of things. These are like words to say. Uh, These are things to ask about. Well, in Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, uh, the parallel account to this, when Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer, it actually comes as a response to this question that they have for Jesus. And their question to him is, or I guess it's a a request. Uh, They say, Lord, teach us to pray. And I think it's interesting because uh, elsewhere in the gospels, as far as we know, like you don't really see any other request like that from the disciples for Jesus to teach them to do something, right? Like this is the only, one of the only places that we see uh, the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to do something and it's to pray. And I think that shows us at least a couple of things. First, that we need to learn how to pray. Uh, For something as simple as uh, just talking with God, which is what prayer is, we still need to learn how to do it. And maybe for you, uh, it's not necessarily like the how-tos or like, what do I say kind of thing. But uh, I know, I'm pretty sure that this area of your life is an area where you feel like you've fallen short, where you feel like you still have a lot of learning to do, right? A lot of growing to do. And life is busy and it's distracting and prayer seems like it's not productive sometimes, or it feels like a duty or a chore rather than a blessing and a joy. Maybe you've wondered to yourself, why is something that is so important uh, to the Christian life, and I know that God wants me to do, why does this feel so impossible to do? Why does this feel so hard? So that's the first thing, right? We learned that we need to learn how to pray. 
And then the second, I think there was something about Jesus's relationship with God, his enjoyment of the father, the way that he lived his life that caught the disciples' interest, right? They looked at his life and they're like, there's something different about him. Like whatever you have, Jesus, we want that too. And it's interesting that they recognized that it was prayer, right? They're like, they looked at his life and they said, okay, we want that, so teach us how to pray. They recognized that prayer was so essential in that, that prayer is how we enjoy relationship with God. Well, here in the Lord's Prayer, we get Jesus' answer to that request. Disciples say, teach us how to pray. And this is what Jesus says. And we are discipled by Jesus himself. He understands our struggle and he wants to help us to grow. And even more than that, he wants to invite us into that same kind of relationship. Now, a few things I wanna point out about the Lord's Prayer um, before we jump into our outline. Uh, First is how is this prayer supposed to function for us? Like how, what are we supposed to do with this as believers? And I think it's somewhat ironic that right after Jesus warns against um, empty phrases and just speaking many words in prayer that we get this, right? We get this prayer, which has kind of become that for many people, right? This has become something that is empty, right? Or that we just uh, will say without thinking. And there's nothing inherently wrong with reciting this prayer word for word. There's nothing wrong with praying this regularly, But more than just a script to recite, Jesus is giving us a model for our prayers. Okay, that's how it's supposed to function for us. It's a model for our prayers. And I think this is helpful because often we might not know what to say or we get distracted in prayer. And the Lord's prayer gives us a path forward, right? It's it's simple, it is concise. Um, This is how we should address God. Here are some general things that we should talk about. Like these are the priorities that we should have when we go to God in prayer. And of course, there's other places in scripture that encourage us to be honest, to, to, to ask freely, right? We're not like confined to these things, but I think this particular passage shows us that the discipline of prayer is formative. And what I mean by that is that prayer and God shapes us, right? And and this prayer shapes the things that we ask for as we pray again and again and again. The Lord's prayer disciples us and it forms us. And our priorities are shaped by God's priorities. Um, Second thing I want you to notice about this prayer is the corporate nature of this prayer. If you look at the pronouns throughout this, uh, whenever it's talking about us, all of the uh, the pronouns are plural, right? It's our father, or give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. And back in that day, it was assumed that prayer, um, often, not always, was a corporate activity. So it was just something that you would do together with God's people. But more than that, I think realizing this corporate nature of the Lord's prayer shapes the content of our prayers. We are forced to remember that we are brothers and sisters in God's family. We are moved to think about other people. We are moved to consider our relationships, to think about the people that we've sinned against. Uh, We ask not just for our own needs, but for other people's needs as well. This prayer expands our awareness beyond just our own lives and just our own desires and needs to the lives of others. And it's also even more than that, Um, to God's kingdom and to his glory. And so notice the the corporate nature of this prayer. And then just last comment before we jump into our outline. Uh, You may be wondering what happened to the last line of this prayer. Uh, 
or the line, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, right? That's like, we recite that when we recite the Lord's prayer. And for some of you, it might show up as a footnote in your Bible. Uh, and we won't really get into this, but I'll just mention it. Uh, but basically this part was likely not part of the original manuscripts, okay? And this was probably added later on for use in a worship service. Um, and so that's why it's not included in your Bibles uh, because it was not part of the original manuscripts. And there's nothing wrong with praying it. You see similar ideas elsewhere in scripture, um, but that's why you might see it in your footnotes, okay? Just to clear that up in case you're confused. Um, but we'll jump into our outline and there's three ideas that I wanna uh, show us from the Lord's Prayer that I think it teaches us. And the first one is this, in prayer, we relate to God as our Father. Like we said at the beginning, prayer, I think is challenging for, for many various reasons, but probably one of the biggest reasons why many of us find prayer so challenging is that we forget who we're, we forget who we're talking to. We forget who we are talking to. And I think when we remember who we're talking to, that should encourage us towards prayer, right? My goal is not to discourage you even more or to guilt trip you, but to, to remind you of this privilege of talking to God. And the very first thing that Jesus wants us to know about prayer, the very first words that he says after pray then like this, are what? He says, our father in heaven. And for us, when we read that, we might gloss over it a little too quickly because we're familiar with that. Like we just know that's, that's what we say. But for Jesus' audience, this was a shocking and a profound statement. See, if you read throughout the Old Testament, this title of father, uh, it does show up like a handful of times. It was always in relation to Israel. So it wasn't just this general fatherhood of God, but it was this unique relationship to his people. But it wasn't really common. It was just like a handful of times. It doesn't really show up uh, until Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, when you read throughout the gospels, like one of the things that made the religious leaders so upset at Jesus was that he dared to speak and address God as his father like this. Right? They're like, you can't, that's not, that's not right. Like you can't do that. Now, of course, Jesus being the son of God, he, he does relate to God the father in a way that is special, that is uniquely distinct from us. But here in this prayer, he invites us to experience and to enjoy that same kind of relationship. And Jesus says that when you pray to God, speak to him as your father in heaven. Remember that that is who you were talking to. Because when you remember that, that is gonna make a difference with what you do in prayer. That's gonna make a difference with whether or not you pray. And we saw this in last week's passage, right? We read that at the beginning. Jesus warns against hypocrisy. Do you remember what he said specifically about prayer? He said two ways how not to pray. He said, uh, don't pray to be seen by others and don't pray just heaping up empty words, empty phrases, thinking that you'll be heard for your many words. And if you think about both of those ideas, those, those wrong ways to pray, at the heart of it is forgetting and misunderstanding who you're praying to. And Jesus says, Instead of praying to be seen by others, go into your room, go into a private place, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. He says, you can put on this uh, religious act. You can like string together these nice theological sentences. And you know what? People might buy it. You know, people might hear you do that and they might think that you're super, go super godly, right? Like, oh, you must be like so close to God. But that's it, right? That's what Jesus says. He says, you've received your reward. 
You have settled for the applause of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus is saying, think about what you have missed out on, right? If you've settled for that, you have missed out on communing with the God of the universe. You have forgotten that you're speaking to your father in heaven. You have made little of this great spiritual privilege. What about that second one? Thinking that you'll be heard for your many words. Well, it's the belief that God is not interested in your prayers, right? Isn't one of the things that makes, isn't that one of the things that makes prayer hard? Or you think to yourself, like, does God even hear me? Does he even care about what I have to say? And we can feel like God is reluctant to answer and we feel like we need to impress God. Uh, we, we think to ourselves, oh, God won't make it time for me unless I make time for him, right? Our God will not take me seriously unless I take him seriously, unless my life is all together, unless I have a good track record of fighting my sin and doing my quiet times this week. And I think maybe perhaps part of the reason why we fall into that kind of thinking is because often that's how our human relationships work. Right, if you want to be heard, then you better give people a reason to listen to you. You think about the career fair, you better, give, you better have an impressive resume to hand to that recruiter right, at that table. Or you better make a good first impression with that person who you really want to like you. Even with a parent and a child, as much as I love my own children, like I know that there are instances when they have to do something, whether that's like repeat themselves or cry or just do something to get my attention because I'm distracted. Often we forget who we are praying to and we don't really know what God is like. We forget the privilege of coming before our father in heaven. We think that we need to earn God's listening ear. And we see prayer as this thing that we, are, that we must do because like we're just supposed to do it. And we think to ourselves, okay, maybe God will answer, right? Like, but that's, that's up to him. And we treat prayer as an obligation or duty. And we forget that most fundamentally prayer is engaging in relationship. It's enjoying relationship with your father. And so what about you? What is the picture of God that comes to mind for you when you go to him in prayer? Is it someone who you think is just so far above you that he seems distant, that he seems unapproachable, or uninterested in your concerns? Is it someone who you feel like you need to impress or you need to appease with your good works? Is it someone who might listen to you but is otherwise powerless to do anything about the things you're asking about? Or maybe you do think of God as father, but then that understanding is influenced perhaps in a negative way by just our earthly fathers. What does it mean that God is our father? And obviously we could spend weeks and weeks answering this question because there's so much that the rest of scripture says about it. And actually later on, the sermon, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get to some of this. But for now, let's just take that sentence in verse eight, right? And let's just meditate on it. Verse eight says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Just like pause and think about that for a moment. For God to know what you need, even before you ask him, means that he knows you intimately, right? He knows you thoroughly. He knows you lovingly. And it's not like what you need is like just this, you know, laundry list of items that is divorced or separated from who you are, right? From knowledge of you, your circumstances, your desires, your, your life, your good. 
Now, God knows you personally. It means that there is no moment when his eye is off of you or his attention is distracted from you. There's no moment when his care for you falters. For God to know you means that he knows even the ugly sinful parts of you, right? It means that he knows the parts of you that so often we try to hide. So often we try to cover up with many words and and sounding theological and putting on this facade in front of others. No, God sees that. He knows that. He sees all the twisted things that people don't see. I like how J.I. Packer says it. He says, there's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst of me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way I am, also, I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Right, if he knows all of that about you, and yet for, for some unfathomable reason, he has still chosen to enter into relationship with you, he still hears you, he still gives you what you need, and that means we can ask boldly. Right? We can ask without fear. Um, I like how Tim Keller illustrated it. He said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning is for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. And God is pleased to answer when we ask. Well, we'll get to this later in chapter seven. He is pleased to give us not just physical provision, but forgiveness of sin, deliverance from temptation. And that second part of um, verse eight is helpful as well, right? He knows what we need. That means that your father is deeply invested in your good, that your father in his infinite wisdom is thoughtfully answering your prayers according to what is best for you. Guys, do you know your father in heaven like that? Maybe for you, you're sitting here and you know all these things about God. Uh, Maybe you can tell me about who God is, his attributes and things like that. Maybe you can explain to me how prayer works or you know what the doctrine of adoption is, but you know what it's like to be with him, right? To be able to call on him as your father in heaven. What is it like to know him and to talk to him like that? When we know who we are praying to, then the content of our prayers will be radically affected in two ways. His concerns will be given priority. They're more important than ours. And then secondly, our needs will be committed to him. And that leads us to, Um, Our next points, point number two is in prayer, we refocus our lives on God's glory. Verse nine, Jesus says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now for us, we don't really use that word hallowed these days, um, but if you look in your footnotes, um, it might say like, let your name be kept holy, or it might say, let your name be treated with reverence. I think those are good definitions. That's what we're saying, right? Let your name be treated as holy. Um, We're not adding to God's glory or to his holiness, but we're saying, God, may you get the honor that you deserve, right? May everyone everywhere glorify you because you are worthy of it. Um, That second petition, God's kingdom, uh, his kingdom is his rule and his reign. It's, uh, so when we pray that we are eagerly anticipating this future reality, but at the same time, we are desiring that the values of God's kingdom, right? Everything that we've learned about in the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're asking that those would be true right now. Um, and then lastly, to pray for God's will to be done is to ask that everything that God plans and desires would come to pass. And together, these first three petitions ask that what is true in heaven, where God's name is totally honored, 
where he is crowned as king, where everything is in submission, perfect submission to his will. Uh, we're asking that everything that is true in heaven will be true here on earth. And those are, those are grand and glorious ideas. Maybe they even feel a little bit distant or detached from us because it just feels like they're so far above us. And maybe you think to yourself, like aren't God's glory and kingdom and his will, aren't those things kind of inevitable? Like what's the point of me praying for that if it's gonna happen already? Perhaps you might almost feel like, what does this have to do with me? And I think that's exactly why Jesus starts here. That before we even get to our own petitions and our own requests, we refocus on God's glory we need our agendas reset. So in prayer, we're not like asking God to join in on our plan, but we are realigning our hearts with God's kingdom, right? We're joining in on God's story. And for us, we can often become so concerned and hyper-focused on our own name, our own kingdom, our own will. And, and that causes us to manipulate, to try to control things, um, to insist on our own way, we get frustrated or upset when things don't go according to plan. And when we pray this, we are saying, God, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done by everyone everywhere, right? Because you deserve it, but also starting with my own life, right? May that be true of my own life. Now, for some of you here, could it be that you're not getting what you're asking for because what you want is really about your own name? your own kingdom and your own will. And maybe that thing is even a good thing, right? Like a, a relationship, a job offer, a change in circumstances. And I don't wanna give the impression that like, I know why God has, has answered or hasn't answered your prayer or that he just like wants to withhold good gifts from you. But is it possible that you need to refocus your request on God's glory? That you really need to slow down and pause and to check your own heart or to invite a trusted friend to check your heart for you. If we truly slow down to consider what we're asking, this is a hard prayer to pray. For example, when you pray, your will be done, you are asking for God's desires over your own desires, right? You're asking God, okay, I'm gonna open up my hands. I'm gonna release my grip on my own plans, my own hopes, my own desires. And you are asking for things like Christ's likeness, even if it comes through trials, right, over your own comfort, over your own personal ease. When you pray, your will be done, there will be a struggle between the spirit and the flesh, and it might be a very costly prayer request. But if anyone ever understood the costliness of that struggle, if anyone ever understood the difficulty of this prayer, it was Jesus. In the garden, he prayed, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet not my will, but yours be done. We know that God's will for his son, Jesus Christ, was to go to the cross, to drink the cup of his wrath, to die for sinners like us. And it's because Jesus chose to submit to the father's will rather than to cling tightly to his own, that we have been brought near to the father, right? It's because God, it's because Jesus submitted to the father's will that we can know that God is for us and not against us. That even when we cannot trace his hand, that we can trust his heart. We can submit to God's will over ours because we trust that God is our good and wise and loving father. He is worthy of our lives. Okay, so that's the second point. In prayer, we refocus on God's glory. And then lastly, in prayer, we remember our humble dependence. 
Um, David Pallison, he once shared this insight about prayer that um, has kind of stuck with me ever since I read it. But he said that we should think about the question, why do we pray in a similar way to how we think about the question, why do we breathe? Uh, If someone were to ask you, why do you breathe? You wouldn't say to them, oh, I breathe because I'm supposed to, right? Or, Or I breathe because like it makes me feel better. Or I breathe because it's just like, you know, a habit that I have. Um, Or I breathe because my cells need oxygen to react with glucose to create energy and it needs to expel the carbon dioxide out. Like you wouldn't say things like that, right? All of those things are true, but if someone were to list those reasons, if you asked them, you'd be like, no, that's ridiculous. There's a very simple reason or answer to to why you breathe. You breathe because you need to. You, You breathe because you need to breathe to live. You'd absolutely depend on it. And if you don't breathe, then you die. Well, if that's true, and we need to realize that prayerlessness is not just a matter of forgetfulness, right? It's not just like, oh, I like, forgot to do this thing. Prayerlessness is a faith commitment. That you pray because you believe something about God and the world. And you also don't pray because you believe something about God and the world. And when we don't pray, we are believing something about ourselves. We're trusting in our own self-sufficiency. We think that we can live without breathing. I think this is convicting for me to think about, especially as someone in ministry. Um, I I can put in hours and hours and and a lot of time into study and sermon prep, meeting up with people, uh, being here with you guys at Beacon. But when I really think about it, right? When I neglect prayer, what am I saying? Like I'm saying that in my preaching, in my counseling, in my evangelism, in my ministry, that I can depend on my own giftings or I can depend on my own talents or abilities or, or insights or wisdom or experience. Like I can just depend on myself rather than God. You know, God, I'm good. Like I can just handle this on my own. What might that look like for you in your life? Like, how would you finish this sentence for your own life? That in your prayerlessness, that I'm really believing this, or I'm really trusting in this about myself. Well, here, when we get to the second half of the Lord's Prayer, after starting with this focus on God's glory, it shifts to praying for our own needs. And bringing each of these petitions to God reminds us that we are utterly dependent on him. Why we need to pray, we need to go to him because if not, we die, right? We desperately need him for life and breath and everything. And if you look at these three petitions, they are pretty comprehensive, right? They're, they're basically the Christian life. Um, you can think of it in terms of these three words, provision, pardon, and protection. So the first one is provision. This is verse 11. Uh, Jesus says, give us our daily bread. And you can think of daily bread as just like, not just bread itself, but just the ordinary daily needs of life. So food, health, shelter, uh, family, government, peace, protection. And maybe you read that and it seems like this like steep drop off from going to talking about, you know, what's going on in heaven, God's name, his kingdom, his will. And all of a sudden you're talking about daily bread. But Jesus invites us to talk about these things, right? To ask the father for these things that they are not trivial to him. You know, later on in Matthew 6, 31 to 32, Jesus, he does, he says, uh, he's talking about anxiety, right? He says, don't be anxious about what, you will need, about what you will eat or drink or wear. And he doesn't say, because it doesn't matter, 
right? No, he says, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. These matter to God. And one way that we bring God glory actually is by asking for these things when he provides these things for us. Now, of course, we do need to recognize that Jesus is talking about the necessities rather than the luxuries of life. And so there's this aspect of contentment with having what we truly need. But that word daily is significant, right? It's this idea of something that is immediate. It's, it's not something in the dis- far distant future. And I think Jesus's original audience would have understood this better than we do. Um, back in that day, workers, they were paid at the end of the day for the work that they did that day, okay? And whatever they made was used to buy food for that day or for tomorrow. And I know for us in this day and age and in this part of the world, we don't live like that anymore, right? We're not really worried about what's gonna be on the table, right? We, we can save, we have an abundance of resources. But no matter how much you have, Jesus is still calling us to this same heart, this day-to-day dependence on him. You guys remember Exodus 16, Israel in the wilderness, when God provided bread for them, right? They, he did that for 40 years. Every morning they would have to wake up and they would have to trust that God would give them exactly what they needed. And they didn't work for it. They didn't produce it themselves. God simply gave it each morning. They had to trust that it would be there for them. And I'm thankful that scripture understands our tendency to be anxious about a thousand different things in the uncertain future. I'm sure you guys can relate to that, especially as college students, you're constantly thinking ahead, right? Even trying to imagine like life 10 years from now. I have no idea what my life will look like 10 years from now. And Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Or maybe you've heard a testimony or you know someone who has gone through great suffering, right? And you think to yourself, well, like, that's like amazing, but I could never do that. Like, I could never go through that. Like, if I were in their shoes, I don't know if I would make it. And when we think in terms of hypotheticals, we're like, oh, like, if that were to happen to me, I don't know if I could do that. Hebrews 4.16, it says that you can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and you can expect to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that, that last phrase I think is so important for us, right? Maybe you cannot imagine responding well in situations like that and, and suffering because you're just not there yet, right? You're not in a time of need yet and that's okay. But when that time of need does come around, what does that verse say? You can trust that God's mercy and his grace will be available to you, that it will meet you there, right? It's this day-to-day, moment-by-moment dependence. It is this invitation to entrust the future to God, to receive today's grace and provision. Um, The second, uh, the the next petition is for pardon, right? Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, just a quick note on verses 14 to 15, Um, We won't spend much time on this, but let me just mention it since it's in our passage. Notice that this verse 12 is not just asking for forgiveness, but it's also extending forgiveness, right? And so I think verses 14 and 15 are just kind of additional commentary on that idea. And Jesus is not saying that we somehow earn God's forgiveness through our own like good work of forgiving others, right? It's like we don't earn forgiveness because we've forgiven others but rather he is saying that God's forgiveness ought to make us forgiving people. And if you're not, then that should give us like reason to pause and reason to seriously consider, do you really truly understand God's forgiveness for yourself in the first place? 
Okay, I think that's what Jesus is saying there in verses 14 and 15. But anyways, back to verse 12. There might be a question that comes to mind when you read this petition. And it's this, if we've already been forgiven as Christians, why do we need to pray, forgive us our debts? You know, when I was younger, um, I used to think that every time I prayed this, God would just like wipe the slate clean, right? Like I had this bank of sins that like I would do. And then when I prayed this, like God would just clear that. Um, And so I thought to myself, well, like I make sure I better like pray this every night. So I start the day, you know, on a clean slate, or I definitely better pray this on my deathbed, you know? So when I die, like I have all my sins forgiven. But of course, that's not how it works, right? If, if you've trusted in Christ, then your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. They are paid in full. And so if that's true, then why do we need to pray this? I like how Kevin DeYoung explains it. This is in your handouts. He says, Jesus wants us to relate to God, not just as a judge, but as a father. If you think of God only as judge, then you are either innocent or guilty. You were justified or not justified. You don't think in terms of pleasing or displeasing God. As important it is to recognize that God is judge, if that's the only way you relate to him, your Christianity will become stilted and stale. Um, He continues, I don't think this part's in your notes, but he says, you wouldn't go back to the judge to admit another mistake, but you would go to the father to say you're sorry. If they are good children, if they know that I am a good father, they will come to me and acknowledge their sins and I will be eager to forgive them. You get that? So sin cannot touch your legal standing before God, the judge, but it can affect and it can hinder your relationship with God as your father. And I think we understand this in human relationships as well, right? Your parents will always be your parents, but there can be sin, there can be guilt, there can be something that causes distance in that relationship. And I think when it comes Uh, I think when it comes to this for us, we can often struggle with these two tendencies that are almost kind of like on different ends of the spectrum. That on one hand, we can too quickly move on from our sin, right? We just wanna like absolve ourselves, we wanna clear ourselves. We don't want to consider the weight or the consequences of the ways that we have offended God. And Jesus says, no, like confessing your sin, speaking humbly and honestly about it before God is necessary. And it should be a regular part of your conversation with him. And Psalm 32 is a good passage that talks about this. It describes the sorrows of staying silent about your sin rather than confessing it to God. And the picture in Psalm 32 is your life is just sucked away, right? Like you wither away. The health is just withered away from your relationship. And so that's one tendency we tend to have, right? It's like, we just don't want to talk about sin. And, And Jesus says, no, you should, right? For the sake of your relationship. Confess your sins to God. But on the other hand, I think this is the other extreme. Like sometimes we feel like confession alone is not enough, right? Like, like surely God wants more than that, right? How can it just be that I like ask for forgiveness and that's it? And so our feelings of guilt, they keep us from going to God, right? They keep us from praying because we feel like we need to do more to make up for it. But Beacon, the fact that Jesus includes this petition in the Lord's prayer means that he fully expects you to need this, that he fully expects you to need his grace and need his forgiveness. And all of us, we still sin, that there is not gonna be a point in this life when you don't need daily or hourly forgiveness. Your guilt shouldn't keep you from going to him in prayer, but it should show you how much you need him. Not only does he fully expect you to need this, but he fully wants to answer, right? First John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And so provision, pardon, the last one is protection. Okay, so not just pardon from past sin, but protection from future sin. Verse 13, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, when we get to this final petition, there might be a question uh, that comes to mind. And this time it's maybe more of a theological question, but the question is this, does this mean that God tempts us? Right, if we are, if we're supposed to, if we're taught to ask, like, lead us not into temptation, lead us not into temptation. Does this mean that God tempts us, right? Is there that possibility? And we won't spend too much time on this, but the clear answer from scripture is no, God does not tempt us. Um, James 1, 13 to 15 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So that's pretty clear, right? It's impossible for God to tempt us because there's no evil in him. He doesn't try to solicit us into committing sin. James says that each person is tempted by our own desire. However, we do see elsewhere in scripture that God does allow his people to go through times of testing. We see that with Job. We see that with Abraham, um, even Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. And I think what can make it even more confusing is that sometimes it's that same word for test or trial and temptation. And I think how you can understand the distinction is in terms of purpose and motivation, okay? Um, For example, James 1, 2 to 4 says that the trials and the testing of your faith is for your good. That God tests us uh, in order to prove the quality of our faith and to produce steadfastness and to grow us in character. Okay, so it's important when we read this petition to have these like theological understanding in place. Okay, so we're not confused. But with that being said, when we read this final petition, I think we should read this not so much as like logical or rational, but as something emotional. Uh, Yeah, like we know theologically, we know intellectually that temptation and evil are inevitable. Uh, We know that we can be confident in God who sustains us, who protects us, who keeps us, who sovereignly works those times of testing for the maturing of our faith. We we can have all of that knowledge in mind. We can believe that. But still to pray this petition uh, is to know your own weakness well. Right? It is the, the cry of the heart that knows itself so well. It's it's to humbly pray for escape, even from what seems inevitable. To pray this prayer is to be so aware of your weakness that you are pleading with God to hold you up and to not allow you to run into sin. Uh, It's the lyrics of that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You know, I'm sure you can probably think of things that um, you used to find scary as a child, but now that you're older, you realize aren't scary anymore, right? Um, And Interestingly enough, there's like actually things that go in the opposite direction too, like things that weren't scary, but are now scary, um, like germs and clowns. <laughs> but as we grow older, <laughs> we, we generally see this world as a less frightening place, right? Or at least we think that like, now that I, I'm older, now that I'm more experienced, like I, I know how to uh, escape dangers, right? I know how to just get around things. Right? I know how to avoid what's bad for me. But to pray this petition reinforces to us an awareness of our weakness. 
right? It is the opposite of self-confidence. It's the opposite of this complacency and being too comfortable. John Piper says that every step we take is a step in the presence of temptation, that there's no moment of your life that is not a moment of temptation, a moment when unbelief and disobedience is not a possibility because that's what life is, endless choices between belief and unbelief, obedience and disobedience. And if you read carefully, notice that the request isn't just like keep us from giving in to temptation when we're tested, but it's even this desire to avoid temptation altogether. Like don't, don't even put me in that situation because I know I am so vulnerable. Let me just illustrate from my own life. When I think about my time in high school and college, I think one of the ways that God really was gracious to me that um, I, I don't often reflect upon and I didn't realize it in the moment is uh, he, he really protected me in keeping me from certain opportunities and temptations, like in high school and in college. And like many of you, I was part of AACF. I, most of my time was spent around other believers. And just because of that, like I wasn't exposed to, to certain temptations, right? And that's not to say that like temptation was entirely gone or that I, I still didn't struggle with certain weaknesses and sins in my own life. But looking back, I recognized that I needed God to protect me in that way. Right? Because I know just my own heart, if I maybe were exposed to certain things, like I'll be very prone to give in to those things. And God was very gracious and not even putting me in that situation. And sometimes, you know, it's just the lack of opportunity that keeps us from falling. And that's just being honest about ourselves. And I think that's kind of what this petition is getting at. That sometimes we are simply that close if not for the grace of God in protecting you. And so to pray this is to ask that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so what about you? What are those areas in which you are most spiritually vulnerable? Like what are your personal and particular sins and temptations? Are you aware of those, what those things are for you? And maybe it's your temper, uh, sexual sin, uh, resentment and bitterness, gossip, materialism, substances, do you bring that before God? Right? Not overestimating yourself, but asking for his help. And again, going back to this idea of relationship, ultimately we pray for God's protection from these things, from temptation and from evil, not just to like avoid bad things, but we do it because we love God, right? Because we hate sin and we want to love God. We want to please him. We want to live holy lives. We want to stay close to our father. So we cast ourselves on him who will lead us and deliver us. All right, let me start to bring this to a close. As you can see, there's a lot packed into this model prayer. And I think it's worth your time just on your own to go through each of these petitions and to think more about each of them. But let me try to bring everything back together with just this final thought. And it's going back to this idea of our father in heaven. Right, if you go through each of these petitions, each of these ideas in this model prayer, I think you can connect it back to this overarching idea. Right? We see God's fatherly care in every word of this prayer. It is filled with his concern for you. When you think about the structure of this prayer, right? God is not just great and glorious and distant. He's not just far away in heaven, but he is your father who condescends to your personal, your ordinary, your daily needs. Like we already said, we can pray hard prayers like your will be done, knowing that our father is for us, that he is parenting you, that, that even though embracing his will might go against what you want in the moment, Right? You trust that he knows better than you do. 
right? That he knows, okay, maybe you're not ready for this or this is not good for you. He knows better than we do that it, he knows what is for our good. When you look at the request for daily provision, for pardon, for, for protection, we see that God has already promised to give these things to us. And we already have the promise of forgiveness through Christ's perfect work on the cross. There's no condemnation for those who are in him. We have the promise that God is faithful, that he will not let his children be tempted beyond their ability, that they will be able to endure it and escape it. We have the promise of his spirit who sanctifies us from one degree of glory to the next, who makes us hate our sin more, who makes us love holiness more, who is our guarantee that God will not only protect us, but he will complete the good work that he started in us. We ask for daily bread, knowing that our father provides for all of his creatures continually. We read this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, even apart from their asking, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So when you look at all of that, right? Your heavenly father truly does know what you need even before you ask. He's already answered all of these. And so yes, prayer is an act of worship to God. Yes, prayer elsewhere we read in scripture, it does make a difference. It changes things. But also we see in this passage, prayer is an invitation. It's an invitation to ask and to receive. He says, come to me, like ask this of me because I want to give to you. It's an invitation to remember your humble dependence onto him and to receive the father's care. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come before you as your children. That you truly are our heavenly father. You provide for us far more than we deserve. You provide for us in ways that we're not even aware of. You know our needs even before we ask. Father, I pray that the truth of that that relationship that we can come before you as our Father in heaven, I pray that that truth would be real to us, that we would meditate on that. We would never take that for granted. We would be so thankful for that, that it drives us to prayer uh, with you. Pray for our small group time. There'd be profitable conversation. Help us to think deeply upon this passage to encourage one another um, with our thoughts. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.